there's certain people, individuals, they became the face of techno, which was a white face, and it wasn't paying homage to the roots of it. This is black music, and give credit where credit's due. Techno is black music. Das ist der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast, der Podcast rund um Nachtleben und Clubkultur. Wir sprechen mit DJs, Türstehern, Tänzern, Clubbetreibern und anderen Nachtmenschen. Mein Name ist Gesine Kühne. Und ich bin Jakob Töne. Herzlich willkommen beim Electronic Beats Podcast. Hi, it's me, Jacob Turno, and welcome to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast. Today, I'm speaking English again, as the interview you're about to hear is also in English. And you're about to listen to my dear colleague, Whitney. She's the editor-in-chief of Electronic Beats, and she'll be doing today's interview. Whitney recently wrote an article named Electronic Music is Black Protest Music on electronicbeats.net. And it's about the erasure of black and brown narrators from the history of electronic music. So Whitney is talking to King Brit, an American DJ and producer from Philadelphia. You may know him as the DJ of the hip-hop jazz fusion band Digable Planets. He's also an assistant professor at the University of California in San Diego, and he reached out on Instagram via direct message in response to Whitney's article and shared his work and his teachings on the topic. That's why we would like to listen to King Brit's point of view in the podcast episode today. Whitney and King will talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, Afrofuturism and electronic music, which honors people of color who pioneered groundbreaking genres within electronic music. But they also talk about the emergence of jazz fusion, Chicago house, Detroit techno, drum and bass, or the LA beat scene, which were created as reactions by socio-political events for underrepresented communities. But let's not tell too much up front. Telecom Electronic Beats, and especially the editorial team, has taken a largely educational stance on the Black Lives Matter movement. We are educating ourselves and try to educate others with links to relevant black literature or bail founds where you can donate to. That's also why we decided to speak with someone who is facilitating these conversations daily in an academic setting and also having a professional background in music as well. If you want to find out more about King Brit, please check our show notes for further links. But now let's move on with a talk between Whitney and King Brit. First of all, let me just say I loved your article and... You know, it was refreshing to read that, especially someone so young. So, yeah, it was uh, it was beautiful. And, you know, I immediately sent it to my class because it actually was everything that we went over through the through the whole term. Um, so I was just extremely excited. <laughs> that that article was done. So thanks for that. Thank you for those kind words. That really means the world to me. I think that, you know, in the midst of this very revolutionary period, I was digging through so much of the the history because people were talking about the black roots of techno and house music, of electronic music. And I would find bits and pieces everywhere, like just scattered in interviews, but there was no comprehensive or any kind of ever put into like a feature length article that would scoop all of these elements and put them together. And that really shocked mm -hmm. me. And I was like, well, you know, now's the time. It's really important to get that out there onto the world stage. So I'm really happy that you're able to absorb it and um, come up with something for your students to also absorb as well. Um, so 
Given that our conversation is occurring in the midst of the revolution, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's the most important to address at this time is that we'll be discussing themes of Afrofuturism, the Black origins of electronic music, and giving credit where it's due in the formation of culture. Um, But one thing that I really noticed, uh, especially when we're having all these dialogues, is that a lot of electronic music fans are always like, oh... um, I would say that music and politics aren't, they're not, you should leave them separate. They're mutually exclusive. A lot of people say that. They say that rave music, like, oh, electronic music is about like partying, it's about dancing. What does that have to do with politics when we have these discussions? So could you explain why music and politics are so inextricably linked for these people? Okay. So first of all, for the course Blacktronica, I felt that it was the most important thing was to talk about the connection between the socio-political uh, situations at the time when the music, this is where the music was coming out of, mm-hmm. you know, out of the, the, um, the energy around protests. I mean, we can just, let's just talk about civil rights. Yes. You know, uh, early, early sixties to the end of the sixties, you know, the whole civil rights movement you know, Motown was basically the soundtrack for that, you know, Motown and of course, early Curtis Mayfield and early funk. So James Brown, you know, these, these sounds, the political uh, climate at the time really came out with those sounds because around those, those times, the lyrics, you know, people wanted to hear about, what was going on and kind of relate to it. But music has always been that, um, that vehicle to give you the news, but in a way that doesn't hit as hard. And it's also, you have to keep in mind, it's also important to have music as, um, as a healing for trauma. And you, you also need joy. And so Motown, was uh, very instrumental in kind of, you know, giving you both the medicine, but also, you know, the bitterness too that was going on at the time. But also not just Motown. I mean, you know, what Hendrix was doing, like just all forms of music at that time. You know, you had the Vietnam protests as well. You had uh, women's rights uh, was just beginning uh, those protests. So, it was just one of those pivotal times where the music was the soundtrack Mm -hmm. for the protests. And if you look at the history, say, let's just go jump into, let's say rave music. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole rave scene was, you know, um, it was a response to all the kind of weird politics that was going on Mm -hmm. in England at the time and and also as a young person, like, you know, rebelling against the kind of establishment uh, with the older generation and, you know, it was a form of freedom. And so out of that rave scene came a lot of music, especially Acid House. Mm-hmm. You know, we can get deep into it, but music and politics always, always go hand in hand. And I don't know, you know, I think maybe the, the people that you interviewed, maybe they you know, a lot of people just look at the surface of music 
and they don't go into the the depths of it. And so I felt, you know, with Blacktronica, it was important to show, you know, a lot of students in my class were into EDM, you know, and EDM is so far removed from the origins of where those sounds came from, you know, so to have DJ Pierre in class and Robert Owens, and we're talking about the origins of house music and of Acid House coming out of the um, the clubs of uh, Chicago and out of the, the the political climate at the time, you know, not just the police brutality that was happening in the late 80s or the early 80s in Chicago, but also coming out of the LGBTQ community uh, with Frankie Knuckles, the warehouse, you know, uh, having a safe space for uh, black gay um, communities. Mm -hmm. And out of that, you know, Frankie was playing more disco. You know, I don't want to get too far away from. What no, but we're it's interesting about. what you bring up because I think that what you were saying about your students having a strong like EDM background, so they're really curious about um, learning about the black roots and how electronic music has always been very political in these ways as being a healing place, as a bomb, uh, as a way to escape trauma. Mm-hmm. But I think that one thing is that you know in Motown or in other like Jimi Hendrix or something, there's vocals that tell you that this is this is a reaction to something. Often having lyrics kind of guides the listener, but electronic music often doesn't have lyrics or sometimes it has samples that are kind of in the background. Mm. But now when people listen to electronic music, they, it's because there's not a lyric or something telling them that this is political music. It's just almost like they don't even think about that. I mean, that's something that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. That's true. But in the music, so let's talk about Detroit really quickly. So it was beautiful to have you know, we went through all genres. We went through, we started with the the Dogon tribe in Mali mm. and went all the way up to the L.A. beat scene and Attica, in, also in England what was going on with Attica Blues and Moax and all of that, the trip hop scene. So, you know, when we got on to Detroit Techno, that day was such a special day because we had because of the pandemic, everybody was home. No, nobody was on the road touring. So I had called up Juan. So Juan was down, Juan Atkins. Mm-hmm. Then Carl was down. I, I hit Carl. He's never home. Carl was down. And then Ash Lauren was definitely down. DeForest, we talked all the time. I felt extremely, he was important to the conversation. Had DeForest, he was always down. He was the first person. He's a brilliant writer. He's a brilliant writer, yeah. Excellent, and thinker. And then, you know, I'm showing, one of the assignments was to watch Black to Techno, which is by Jen and Kiro, which is probably the most important visual documentation of Detroit, but in a different lens. Like, she's coming from you know, England, but studied at Howard and she's bringing a whole different context to it. And then we had, uh, and I reached out to her cause I saw she had posted something on Twitter. I'm like, Oh, she's home. And she was completely down. And then Wajid, of course, my brother, he was down. So all of them together on this panel and you have three generations and then you have someone from England who came in and did this amazing documentary 
And, you know, that's a whole different lens coming from a whole different context. So that class was extremely powerful in explaining uh, the intention behind the music of Detroit techno music that went out to the world. And so, you know, I also reached out to Mad Mike, but we weren't able to get Mad Mike for this interview. But the intention, so when you said music, um, you know, a lot of electronic music, because there's no lyrics, you don't really think about the politics of it. But the politics, they're in there. The intention behind, say, Jeff Mills, I showed in class Jeff Mills using the 909, which is unbelievable. You know, the intention behind it, behind those snares, behind those sounds, that's coming out of, you know, this uh, this urgency around the politics that were happening at the time in Detroit. And so you got to think, you know, you're coming out of the early seventies, early seventies to mid seventies coming out of Motown. But, you know, you had the Detroit riots, which completely destroyed the inner city of Detroit and all these, um, these manufacturers, you know, car manufacturers, which is known Detroit was known for, that was the main income, moved to the suburbs. And so the inner city was kind of collapsing. And then all this industry is in the suburbs now. And so what's happening to the city? But then you have the the Belleville Three. So you have, you know, Kevin Wan and Derek. But they grew up out there in the suburbs, which I didn't realize this, right? So they're listening to Mojo. Their, their Their experience was completely different. And so as Juan was saying, you know, they all met in high school. You know, they were like-minded individuals and they were the only black people in the high school. So they kind of gravitated together, but they used to take trips into the city to see Juan's cousins and, you know, Kevin's cousins and stuff. And so they were getting both sides, you know, and so the music that was coming out of of the time was a reflection of kind of like double consciousness. Like, you know, if we go to Du Bois and you're thinking of, you know, you're looking at your life as a black person, but through the lens uh, through a kind of distorted lens because we're here in America brought over, you know, in slavery times like our our ancestors and we're growing up looking through this this lens of, of whiteness through America, whereas, you know, so that represents the suburbs, but then you had they're they're looking at the their inner city brothers too and the the angst and the energy and so all of that went into the Detroit techno stuff. Even Big Fun and all of that, like, even though Inner City was more celebratory, but still the urgency was You're there in the there. sounds. Yeah, exactly. But I think that it's important that young people, especially now, w- listening to electronic music, investigate more on where it's coming from. And I think classes like this were, are important because 
it, it, it does investigate and research what is going on behind the scenes and where this music's coming from. But also music journalists as well, because the, the, the media <laughs> yes. outlets that you read constantly when they're covering these um, German techno artists or UK house artists is that they don't necessarily always highlight the black roots. Never. And that is also a responsibility of music journalists to really hone that point in that you have to realize you have to give credit where it's due. Um, and I feel like right now we're going through a, a big revolution period where people are recognizing that this is a really, really important to give credit where it's due. But before Thank we you so much for that. <laughs> yes, that, you know. certainly. But before we get into that, I really want to talk about um, you and your journey to being an educator, because obviously you've shaped shifted in so many artistic forms, yeah. genres, aliases, um, yes. from touring with Digital Planets to your work with Neo Soul um, and Disco Funk. Um, and then you pivoted to techno and yes. released on Hyperdub as well. So what prompted all of these evolutions and explorations and all different kinds of genres and aliases? So, so let me just explain, you know, for those who don't know what Afrofuturism is, but it's a it's a cultural intersection between philosophy, technology, visual art, music, science fiction, and the African diaspora, right? So it's that intersection where we use it black people use it as a lens to envision the future, right? And so this is a term that Mark Derry came up with in nineteen ninety-four, uh in his interview with Greg Tate. Uh, and you know, it was coined and it was like, wow, that's a powerful word. The word is very powerful, but you know, it didn't catch on until a few years later and whatever. And now it's like common. It's in every article. Now after you always see it, it's the buzzword of the now, but you know, at first, you know, okay, everybody's using a word, but it is important to, as a description of the type of person that is doing whatever the artistic um, uh, medium is, music, art, visual art, or even academia um, with writing and philosophy, whatever. So I feel the term is important. But just to keep in mind, I, me and everyone else, Carl, whatever, We've all been doing this before the term. So I just want to be clear, like we live this. This is our lives, right? So yes, we can say, yes, we're Afrofuturists, but we've been doing this way before the term even existed. Um, and so I got into music through my parents who were collectors. And so they collected vinyl. My dad owned a barbershop. My mom was a homemaker. She was friends with Sun Ra and the orchestra and I would go to rehearsals, um, you know, once a month and we would go to shows and that sort of thing. Um, she also was a Panther. So we had the, you know, the, the black consciousness, uh, in our household, it was very strong literature, um, just black pride you know, soul power. And my dad was funk. He was funk and soul. My mom was into jazz vocals and fusion. And so I had the best of both worlds in that regard. But then as a kid rebelling, I got more into punk rock and metal and more guitar oriented stuff until hip hop came along. And then that changed everything. But, 
you know, music was always the foundation of everything in the house and at the barbershop. So like my first job at five or six years old was to play little 45s at the barbershop just to keep people happy. So that was the first time I saw like, oh, okay, this music is influencing, like it has power over people. Sound makes people either happy, sad. It makes them, they're like time capsules. You know, they take people back in time or maybe even think about the future. And so this is, you know, at a young age seeing this, how it affects things. But I never thought about being a DJ. So in high school, I was heavy into synth pop, uh, Depeche Mode and everything coming out of England. And so I saved up. I got my first Moog uh, in 85. Yeah, 85. Uh, into 10th grade, going into 11th grade. And, you know, I had me and my friend Dazia, we had like a Depeche Mode cover band uh, called Black Celebration. And, you know, it was black guys doing Depeche Mode. And, you know, it was just for fun, you know what I mean? But never thought about it as a as a serious thing. And then when I went to college, uh, you know, I went for advertising. So I wanted to get into making commercials and that sort of thing. I never thought about music as a the main thing and then I worked at Tower Records while I was in college um, which I dropped out of college uh, my last year um, but anyway I was working at Tower as a 12 inch buyer so I was buying all the 12 inch dance music and so you gotta remember this is 88 right this is like 87 88 the one of the best times to be alive for music you know, and so I'm getting all these imports and bringing them over, but also all these small labels are starting, like Reinforced, uh, you know, Mark Mack and Digo for Hero. You got Carl starting Planet E. Uh, you had Derek starting Transmat. So they all used to call me, and, and Richie, Richie Houghton. So they all used to call Tower to send promos. And so, you know, this is before the internet all you young people no internet and you know this was like just phone so i just collected all these phone numbers and simultaneously so like around 1990 or 89 i was working on a lot of demos because i was like djing i started djing and i live it was myself josh wink um my friend grover grover washington jr son and my friend Blake, we all lived together. And they were doing these great parties. And Josh was like, yo, you need to spin with us. Da, 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 da. You have all these records. So that's when I started DJing. And um, at the same time, I was always making music under different, you know, ideas. I loved hip hop. I loved house, whatever. And Strictly Rhythm was starting, which was, you know, now it's like a legendary house label. But then it was just nothing. And Gladys Pizarro, I used to talk to her on the phone. I said, yeah, I have a demo. I want to send you the demo. Sent it to her, and it got signed. And at the same time, well, of course, Josh and I were, were tight. And so I was like, Josh, you got to come in on this. Let's do this together. Because I'm only child, so I just always wanted to. I love collaboration. And so Josh and I did e-culture, tribal confusion, unification, and it blew up in England, and I went over to England. He went first, and I went over. Then while I was there, I met Mark Mack, Goldie, like all the people I would talk to on the phone. And 
we would be we became friends we're still friends i mean they were in the class and everything this quarter but you know that's where it started like boom and then i just did a lot of house music and then at the same time i met ishmael from diggable planets and he was just doing the demos and everything he's like you know i'm gonna shop this album and i'm gonna get a deal you gotta be in the group and i didn't want to be in a group because i was doing house i didn't want to do hip-hop and then he got the deal and he's like we're going on tour we're touring the world i was like see you later tower (laughs) so i left tower records i went on tour with diggable and you know like-minded individuals again you know diggable planets and now shabazz palaces but you know not to get off subject but i'm just telling you the journey so after Diggable, I left after the first album, after the Sade tour, we toured with Sade, and then I left and I started Ovum recordings with Josh, with Josh Wink. And so our first release was my sister, Ursula Rucker, um, and sister from another mister, we're not blood. Um, and we put out Ursula's uh, first, you know, 12 inch, um, and that's the beginning of Ovum and Ovum is of course still around and blowing up, but I left in 2002. Um, but yeah, I did, we did Ursula's record. I did a few house things, but Silk 130 was my soul R and B moniker. And that's where we, where I really kind of got into the public eye heavy, um, because of the success of that selling over 500,000 through the world. And, we were signed to Sony, so we had a deal with Sony. So Ovum went through Sony. So I had that machine behind it, and I always loved to do the soul R&B stuff, which was a homage to Philly. But then, you know, you do that, and you do the homage. I worked with everyone, all my heroes from the 80s, and Alison Moyer, all of that. But then, you know, I wanted to get back into my house and more electronic stuff. And I've always loved my Detroit techno, always, because, you know, I was buying those records in the beginning, uh, bringing them into Tower, nude photo, all that stuff. And so I dove into more uh, of the techno electronic sound. Um, so I had a moniker called Scuba, not the, not to be confused with the Scuba now, but this was my Scuba. And then I did Nova Dream Sequence on Compost, which Derek May wrote uh, some of the liner notes just saying, you know, this is King's homage to Detroit Techno, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's always been this journey. But what spawned it is I'm always curious. I stay curious. I keep the young heart. I'm always looking for new sounds. And how do I push what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. but differently. Cause I get bored fast too. Like, okay, I've done the hip hop. I've done this. What is the next? I'm always trying to push those sounds. And then Flowston paradigm came out of that kind of push. And that's the moniker that I used for hyperdub. And now, and of course now uh, I just put out Flowston myself uh, and you know, me and hyperdub are still cool. There's no, for anything i just felt that last album which is called after i felt i needed to put it out myself yeah right. it was more ambient and it wasn't conducive to what they were doing um and it did very well but yeah so my journey that's you know i'm always searching for the new mm-hmm. sound 
trying to create and push myself as well as others into right. exploring. And it seems like electronic music is also very much at the heart of at, of what you do. Like you start in the beginning being very into house and then kind of move through all these genres. And then now you're back to embracing um, house and techno and electronic music in its various forms. Yes. And obviously staying curious, like you said, is something that's very part of that. But now you've kind of turned into a role of an educator and you've gone into academia. So how have you pulled what you've learned through all these explorations into your new role? Because now it's, it's not just making music necessarily but it's actually really teaching people about what music means and how they think about music so how has that kind of shifted so beautiful question you know it's first of all it's a dream i'm still i'm still kind of tripped out about it because you know uh, a friend of mine um Alyssa, who she founded the synth library in portland she's the one it's her fault. She's the one that contacted me and said, yo, there's this position open at UCSD. You seem like you would be perfect for it. I was like, really? Why? What? Like, I never, ever thought about being a professor. And I said, well, I didn't even finish college. And she's like, well, it's all based on your either PhD or body of work, which my body of work, I mean, yeah. <laughs> It speaks for itself. So not to, I'm not, you know, it is what it is. And so I said, you know what? Hmm, maybe. And then my lady, uh, she was like, you should just do it as an exercise to see also, you know, to get all your stuff together in a CV, to see everything kind of in one place, to see all your accomplishments. Because as, a, as an artist, most artists, as you know, they're so busy especially if that's your main income. So you don't really take the time to stop and see all of your achievements. You just are constantly moving. So I took it as an exercise. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So I filled out all the stuff and whatever, sent it in and forgot about it. And then a few months later, I get this uh, email and I'm on my way overseas. And it's like, you've been selected to, you know, for an interview, whatever. I was like, what? So I did a Skype interview and I was over in Lisbon. So it was after the club and then perfect timing. And I was like, oh, energized. So the interview was great. And then I was in Lisbon for a week and then coming back, another email. We want to fly you out for in person. I'm like, whoa, this is really happening. What the, <laughs> you know? And so I came out. And it was great, and every the the whole UCSD family is phenomenal and just warm, and I felt at home. But what what solidified it was so B plus um, the famous photographer, uh, everything Stone's Throw. He did the Dilla cover, he did the introducing, you know, DJ Shadow cover, everything. He also worked on Exit from the Gift Shop, Banksy. Anyway, he is a professor at UCST, which I knew him from, you know, the Machilla days and doing remixes for him and stuff. And he came to my lecture. I was like, why is he here? <laughs> and then he took me to lunch. He took me to dinner and we, he, he was like, you got to do this, bro. He's like, they need you. You need them. It's a beautiful marriage. You'll see what I mean. I was like, okay. So I made my decision and I said, I'm going to try it. 
and it's been the the most rewarding adventure of my life and what you to hone in on your question everything that i've learned ever since i was a kid all the way to now being an educator is the culmination of all of that coming to a head so i can take all that knowledge like us talking about sunra you know and interviewing julian priester and dexter winesell like this is my childhood so you know bringing these people into the fold bringing them into this class for academia it's bridging the two worlds it's bridging my world as a creator curator and producer but also bridging it to academia and bringing a whole different perspective a new fresh perspective for academia you know because i'm in it right i do it i just released a, a, a single you know what i mean it's not just i'm just an educator like i'm also a performer and and that's the beautiful beautiful thing about UCSD too like everyone in the department they're all performers or former performers you know they're in it and so to bring this side of things it's a beautiful and to watch the youth the students absorb it all and that and also because i'm in it and i'm bringing these guests they're these personal stories and there's this these nuances of us laughing it's like being in a living room you know all my students we're all in the living room and we're just sharing stories that's a whole different approach for academia and i feel honored to be there but not just blacktronica like i teach electronic music production so you know i can talk to them about the changes throughout history from from when i was young so samplers like my first synth how that's changed and how now in your laptop or in your phone you could do a whole album you know but showing that history talking about that from a first person perspective. Yeah, it's a living history. That's what they exactly. call it. Exactly. Living history. But also, you know, when interviewing my friends, I learned more about them that I didn't know. I'm just like, oh my God, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> like there, one super important qu- um, story, short, super short story. So Juan Atkins was saying how he and Derek you know, used to go to Chicago all the time um, just to hear music DJs and stuff. And Frankie Knuckles, Derek May sold Frankie Knuckles his 909. Whoa, that's a that's a great little snippet for our that, podcast as well. <laughs> that snippet and DeForest Brown had brought it up because he had heard a rumor. Mm. And Juan's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that's what? true. <laughs> it's huge. That's like finding, you know, if you're an archaeologist and you are fi- you find like that one. The connection between two civilizations yeah, exactly. <laughs> or something. Exactly. And you're like, house and techno. Like, that's when they had uh-huh. that spark. It was Derek May, man. That's so crazy. That's, that's a really beautiful um, tying together about all these kind of the symbiosis between um, your, pref- your music professional world and then also your academic world, too. And then obviously how Afrofuturism is the 
this thread that runs throughout everything. I guess one thing that's really important, I know that you touched upon it before too, but a lot of listeners don't necessarily know what Afrofuturism is in a musical context. Um, Yeah. So could you explain that specifically within techno and house for our listeners? Yeah. So I'm going to read something that I just wrote. This is my new description of the course, and I think it'll hit on everything. So, Electronica Afrofuturism in Electronic Music, which is the name of the course, honors the people of color who pioneered groundbreaking genres within electronic music, using the intersection of technology, science fiction, and music's foundation within the African diaspora as a lens for shaping new futures and musics. Researching the sonic responses to socio-political events that affect underrepresented communities, giving birth to jazz fusion, Chicago house, Detroit techno, UK drum and bass, and the LA beat scene, and the rest of the global sound history. From Sun Ra to Flying Lotus to More Mother, we shine the light on many that are pivotal in the modern advancement of electronic music. So basically, looking at the beginnings of all of these genres through the lens of Afrofuturism, through the lens of that intersection between science fiction, technology, sociopolitics, all at once, and why that urgency and why that intersection pushes um, these pioneers to make this type of music. That's what it was. Right. Right. And in the beginning of our conversation, you were talking about Detroit and how the Belleville Three were in the suburbs, but they would go mm-hmm. in and, and visit the, the inner city as well. So could you talk more about the socio and political underpinnings that we touched on in the beginning, specifically um, maybe in the second wave during second wave of, of techno during underground resistance and then also touching upon that in in-house music as well? So the, the beautiful thing about, you know, the underground resistance story. Wow. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, Mad Mike and the crew were at the, the, um, new music seminar in New York and that new music seminar, which is kind of like winter music conferences now or whatever. This was back in the day. It was more geared towards hip hop and R and B, but it was awesome that, you know, underground resistance was at new music seminar and they met the two people that went on to, to create Trezor. Okay. Wow. (sighs) Now you got to understand this is 88. The walls coming down. Okay. So the Berlin walls coming down. The, this mad Mike gave this demo tape to them and uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't think of the, the lady's name at the moment. I'm so sorry. Um, but she takes the tape back and, you know, they listen to this tape and it's this beautiful Detroit techno that's happening and especially underground resistance, which, you know, they're the public enemy of techno. You know, they're really the intention behind everything that they do is for black liberation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so especially being out of Detroit, but there the music is to rebuild Detroit. It's not even though it's it has a angst behind it. The whole idea is to rebuild Detroit and show a beautiful light on Detroit, not 
all the urban decay that's in Detroit, even though that's part of it. You know, there's the yin and the yang. And so this music started to filter in, you know, you had um, a hard wax. So hard wax was the the distributor and and the the bridge for Detroit techno. So hard wax is probably the most important cog in the wheel, so to speak, in the machine that really took Detroit techno into the stratospheres in Europe, right? And so hard wax always also managed to bring some of these artists over, right? And so hard wax I feel is kind of pivotal in this whole conversation. But uh, the, this music became the soundtrack to the East and West kids coming together in Berlin. And that's really powerful. And Trezor was the home. It was the community. It was the hub for the East and the West coming together to hear this music because nobody else was playing this sound in Berlin, in Germany. And so when you think about the parallels, you know, there's this East and West, this, this wall coming down, there's this youthful intention behind the music and this revolution going on. The, the, the feeling that underground resistance and everybody else in Detroit was putting into this music resonated with them because it's a parallel struggle. It's a parallel energy that's happening with the youth. And that's why there's this amazing connection between Berlin and Detroit. Right. They always talk about that's the, just one of the stories. That's just one of the stories. Right. But that's all I'm going to say. Right. And now. they talk about the, the Berlin Detroit axis and the relationship about how once Detroit um, exported these sounds to Berlin, then Berliners started creating their own kind of techno and then importing it back to Detroit in this kind of symbiotic relationship. But I'm so, actually. Yeah. Would you like to comment about that? Actually, a little bit. Yeah. So, yes, there's always this back and forth because if you think about even before Detroit Techno started Juan and those guys were listening to you know Electrifying Mojo and a lot of those sounds Kraftwerk, Kraftwerk yeah. a lot of those sounds were German so there's actually a beautiful article by John Morrison in the new Wire magazine where he connects you know, the history of craft work and how it influenced black music. So there were sounds that they used, not only, you know, sounds that they heard, you know, say craft work and these, the can, all these different kind of um, post-electronic or not post-electronic, but post-rock groups were using these electronics back then. Even Bowie's Low, you know, those sounds filtering into that because they're hearing it with, you know, Mojo, they're hearing it on the radio. But then the accessibility of having a 909 and some of these instruments, they're able to make this music themselves. But hearing Depeche Mode, hearing these different sounds, they definitely influence what they were doing. But there's this kind of back and forth exchange. But when you talk about Berlin, you know, taking Detroit techno and kind of morphing it into their own thing. Okay, that's cool. 
but you got to give credit to where you got it from. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just appropriate the sound and not give credit to it. And so there's certain people, individuals, who, yeah, they grew up outside of Detroit, say like Windsor, but they kind of started to claim it and then they became the face of techno, which was a white face and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, paying homage to the roots of it. This is black music, you know what I mean? And give credit where credit's due. Techno is black music. And so you have all these different groups coming out and they're whitewashing the music and not giving credit. If they get credit, then that's one thing. But without giving credit and morphing the sound and just, oh, this is the new sound. Yeah, it's a new-ish sound. You know what I mean? And so that's why I feel it's important that we get this word out. That's why it was beautiful to read your article. It's great to read what John Morrison was saying. You know, because Juan and those guys, they all give credit to Kraftwerk and, you know, even B-52s, Mesopotamia, like all this stuff that was coming out. Like, they give complete throbbing gristle. Like, they give complete respect to them. But, you know, but the sound, they just were influenced by it. They didn't copy the sound. Whereas, you know, a lot of the Berlin techno copied the sound, except for rhythm and sound and, and Maurizio, they always gave credit to Detroit, always. And there's this beautiful communication between Detroit and Berlin uh, with Maurizio and the whole, um, that whole crew. Right. You know, Maurizio and those guys, they're fantastic, man. Like that union. You know, it almost seems like the Berliners, like you said, the East and West were finally coming together. The wall was coming down. And this music was that had so much liberation channeled into it. It felt as though it resonated with Berliners so much that they're like, this must, this is my sound. They quickly claimed the sound because of how much it, um, it just spoke to their experience as well. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about how eventually how it came to take over the rest of Europe. Of course, like Berlin was the central place for it, but this like quick cultural appropriation of things, not obviously recognizing where it's uh, the the founders of the genre, but then also, you know, in the beginning it did, mm -hmm. you know, it did in the beginning. Okay. But then it, you know, because Trezor was bringing Carl, Juan, all the guys, they were bringing Derek every week, every other week, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first wave definitely, definitely paid all respects to Detroit. But it was kind of later, I would say, you know, late 90s or whatever, when it really started to kind of morph into, oh, this is our shit, you know? And it started to dissipate the respect for Detroit, started to dissipate at that point. I, I do think that Love Parade, of course was a huge factor in making this music Detroit techno massive on a global scale. But 
um, as, as well as, of course, the Trezor, because that was like one of the only places you could hear it. But then once Hard Wax was managing these guys and or booking them, you know, if Carl's in in Berlin, then why not have him in Belgium or Amsterdam? Or Amsterdam's a huge example of, you know, uh, they would play Amsterdam all the time. You know what I mean? Um, England, of course. And so I think Hard Wax was major in getting the sound out to everyone, not only as a distributor, but as a, as a um, booking agent. Uh, but then Love Parade taking it to the next level just because it's such a huge, that was a massive, massive, massive movement. So I think the combination of all of that uh, really made Detroit techno, and and of course press, right, you know, spreading press. all around Europe, um, right. And then sure. in England, they put out that Transmat. Uh, this is Detroit compilation. It was a huge thing. I think it was two parts actually uh, on Network Records. So that was a big deal too, because in England, in Manchester, Detroit techno became huge. So they would bring Juan over. They would bring Kevin over. Inner City. Um, you know, it was big at the Hacienda. That was like, everybody was playing it. So it was just infiltrating everywhere. Um, but it started with Trezor and Berlin and the Berlin Wall. It, the, it started as far as infiltrating Europe and paying homage to the originators. Um, but I, I feel, but I feel like when Richie Houghton and that crew came, when he moved to, to Berlin, I think things changed. In what way? I don't know. I mean, I know he he sometimes gives respect and whatever to Detroit because he grew up in Windsor, going to all their parties and appropriating all their sound and taking everything from Juan and those guys. But, you know, he became the face of techno, which, you know, it's not right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't right if you're not going to give credit where credit is due right but right now we're having these conversations so people can recognize it and recognize the totally. faces behind it to get get that word absolutely. out there um absolutely i do i do want to um kind of talk about the sounds associated with techno because in your course your course syllabus you also talk about how it's driven largely by the the drum patterning from the Roland 808 the 909 so how did these machines that were considered commercial failures in so many ways all of a sudden perfectly reflect these urban environs of um yeah cities like detroit and um beautiful question yeah <laughs> you're so good you're really good um so hopefully i'm answering them uh the way they should be answered i hope i'm giving you the material you need um it's been great yeah, thus far <laughs> all right good good because i can go off topic and you know you got to keep me i'll keep you focused me. yeah yeah keep me focused <laughs> So, yes, technology, so in the course, technology plays a huge role, I mean, major role. And, you know, when I first came up with, okay, we have to talk about the technology because the technology helps shape the sound, right? But in talking about the technology, which I'm going to get into in a second, we also found out, we discovered the whole idea of community around the technology. So for instance, in, um, in house, 
in in Chicago, you know, uh, we were talking to Pierre, and Pierre, you know, nobody wanted the 303, 606, like all these machines, and they, you know, that was a huge failure for Roland at the time, the 303. So, you know, going to thrift stores and things, you can find this stuff really cheap. And so Pierre, they, I think he said he bought two, you know, Roland 303s, uh, and, you know, Pierre is the the innovator of Acid House, okay, for those who are listening. It is him who invent, he invented Acid House. So, you know, you had your regular house stuff. So, you know, it was Frankie was playing uh, more soulful, soulful house. But there was also this community that wanted to hear Ron Hardy, where Ron Hardy was playing more industrial stuff you know, front 242, that sort of thing. Um, he's playing craft work. He's playing more electronic things. Whereas Frankie was playing more disco and soulful things. And I didn't know this until the course. And then, you know, uh, Robert Owens was talking about Frankie and then Pierre just went in. Pierre's interview is incredible. And he, uh, and it was last minute, like he just happened to be in town and we got him and he just was fantastic. But he really told us how Ron Hardy was so, so, so important to the birth of Acid House. And so, you know, Ron, I mean, uh, Pierre, they were making these tracks with with uh, the 303, which this technology Nobody was feeling it at the time. And so they weren't reading manuals and stuff. They were just pushing the sound, trying to come up with something different than what was being put out, you know, with the pianos and that sort of thing. And so Future was born and Acid Tracks and that that whole, it it spawned a whole genre, even hip house. You know, you listen to uh, a lot of the old hip house stuff that was coming, which is a, a mixture of hip hop and house and it was all kind of using the 303. So that technology pushed, created a new sound because they were pushing it in ways that it wasn't meant to be. And that's been a kind of thread throughout the whole course, but also throughout the history of black music. Um, especially, you know, look at hip hop. <laughs> when they made the turntable, they never thought, you know what I mean? They'd be used as an instrument and thus out of that coming a language of scratching, you know, a way of communicating. And so the 303 and the 303 and the 808 huge machines uh, in the beginning of Acid House and in the house scene. But the beautiful thing about it, too, now talking to Robert Owens about the production, I couldn't get in touch with uh, Mr. Fingers, but hopefully maybe next quarter, uh, Larry Hurt. But they all used to share equipment. And so that's Chicago, but we go to Detroit. Yo, they all shared equipment. And, you know, Carl said, you know, how he went and borrowed a machine from Juan and Juan borrowed from Kevin. So there was these equipment that was in the community that was shared, but, you know, everyone used it in a different way. And then when we talked to Wajid, Wajid used to borrow instruments from Carl. So 
even generationally, this would happen. Dilla would borrow stuff from Amp Fiddler, you know, because Dilla learned everything from Amp Fiddler. So we even got into how Dilla honed in on his sound. So it was, for me, even for me, it was the most educational, you know, you're all, even as a professor or any kind of educator, you're always learning, you know, if you're open to it. And these stories were just blowing my mind. I mean, the the whole Derek May, Frankie Knuckles selling him the 909, that's huge. That's huge. Right. I actually wanted to ask about kind of going on these these nuggets of knowledge that you learned through interviewing these people. Um, that's one such anecdote. And there is another anecdote in the beginning. Um, I, I can't remember it, but uh, there is another thing that kind of shocked me. But having all these different kinds of guest speakers from media theorists like DeForest and then techno luminaries like Juan and then rising DJs as well, like Ash Lord. And um, there's so many people that have been lending their insider knowledge into your course. What are other particular things that these guests have shared that really surprised you and um, surprised your students as well? Very interesting. I think, you know, a lot of it is which was which has been a running theme through the whole course is um, friendship and community around um, like-mindedness, also being outliers. So everyone that we interviewed has been an outlier from what was going on at the time. So they were always trying to look for something that no one else was doing. So like when we talked to Four Hero, you know, in the beginnings of the whole breakbeat kind of drum and bass scene, which they were instrumental in pioneering, you know, Digo was like, we definitely didn't want to use the Amen Brother break. You know, we wanted to use other breaks. We wanted to push the sound in a different way. And, you know, that bringing that into the fold, thinking about, oh, wow, Mark and Digo have the same ideas in going into making music. That's why it, it works so well. Or, you know, Juan and all those guys they all grew up listening to Mojo, you know, there's always a common denominator within the community. And so when I'm hearing these stories of brother and sisterhood, you know, in these communities and then the music coming out of those communities, I feel that that has been the most enriching for not only myself, but the students are like, wow. I mean, the students are to the point where they want two of my students want to start a, community center centering around electronic music in San Diego. And then a lot of students want to continue uh, doing Blacktronica, not as a class, but like as a, a place to share music that everyone's working on through the summer. I was like, wow, that's beautiful. You know, so we're, we're going to start like a SoundCloud just to share music together and talk every week. Um, and that sparked when we had uh, Attica Blues in, you know, when Attica Blues disbanded, uh, Tony Wakachu, he started CDR, which CDR became huge in its own right. And the whole idea around CDR is, you know, like-minded individuals 
uh, producers coming together to kind of just play their demos on a big system. And, you know, that's important. And when we talked to George Ann Muldrow, the same thing, like low end theory was huge because producers wanted to hear their music on these on that sound system at low end theory. So it was kind of like this this goal yeah. for all the producers in LA, like we got to hear our, our sound on that sound system, you know? Um, I find it interesting that when you're talking about this intergenerational generosity and sharing equipment, um, talking about these community centers where people come together and actually kind of have feedback off of one another, there's such a misconception now in electronic music, whereas like the bedroom producer, he's, he or she is by themselves alone in their room surrounded by equipment and that's how they work. Um, whereas you're saying that the early roots was a bunch of people just borrowing and sharing from one another. And that's how these scenes and these movements start. And I think that that really lifts the veil on how electronic music should be made. Yo, it's huge. And it's still, they're still in their bedrooms though, or <laughs> their small studios doing it. But, there's a community that they're pulling from, you know, there's a, a cultural hub, which is, you know, either the club, usually it's been the club. So let's take low end theory, for example, you know, half of flying Lotus, like Larashji, all these guys mostly met on MySpace, you know, and that's how I got huge and that's how i got hip to fly low like we used to talk on myspace all the time listen you know everybody myspace was amazing because you could you know you could put up your music right there you could change your page it wasn't like facebook looks all the same you can't alter the page and how it looks and instagram which is an instagram has become a, a cultural hub for especially for modular techno or modular electronic music but that's a whole other story. But as far as low end theory, MySpace was huge in uniting these kind of like minded individuals at the time. But as Daddy Kev, who we interviewed, as Daddy Kev, the founder of low end theory, like he was saying, there wasn't a place where everyone could kind of come and play their music. Young people, you got to understand, low end theory was all ages, which is a huge point. Because you had Sketchbook, which was before Low End Theory, with Kutma, um, Coleman, you know, and and um, and uh, Tom Take. Well, he goes by Sweats and Clank now. But they started Sketchbook, but that was over 21, okay? To have something 18 and up made the biggest difference of all. Because those 18-year-olds are on MySpace, they're following... Rashji and Flylo and all these people. So to have a space that they can come hear it. And then Daddy Cove, of course, is all about sound because he's an engineer. So the sound uh, and using pure filth sound system um, out of L.A., they do Coachella and all that. To have this huge sound system in a room that only holds 150 people, it's a powerful thing. And for you to hear your MySpace heroes in this environment that made for the, one of the biggest scenes of, of musical history is the LA beat scene. Um, and Tyler, I used a clip from Tyler talking to Larry King 
in class about their first gig ever was at low in theory. And, you know, they got 500 bucks and they were super excited. And, but to hear their music on that sound system, powerful, powerful thing. So, you know, just to come back to community and bedroom producers coming together, you know, it, you can do whatever you want in your bedroom, but you, you need a community to, to, to play it. You need an outlet, you know what I mean? And I feel that these are, these kind of communal spaces were very important at the time. Um, I'm curious to see what happens post COVID. Um, and I'm, it's, it's going to be, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little scary to see. I don't know how it's going to work. Yeah. Especially in the United States, because I feel as though community centers are so often defunded as, as, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, And like clubs as well. These places, these places are the first places to lose any kind of um, financial stability because they're running with really, really slim margins already. And especially because in the United States, um, there's just not arts funding in general, but in yes. Berlin, luckily, there's a little bit more oh, leeway. Totally. Berlin came correct. Yo. Yeah, I know. My Every- friends in Berlin were like, "Yo, we got, you know, <laughs> he got the you know, the grant but, money." <laughs> but the the club scene is what I was more referring to. Is you know having that space where everyone can come and kind of hear their music on a system and. In a, in a way, like back in the day, because there's something to be said about all those bodies together, you know, feeling that unification. It's I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. I mean, I hope it does, and I feel that it will. But yeah, so it's slow going, definitely. I I was talking at a conversation with my friend about this, but um, it seems like slowly, slowly, we're having you know more. We're giving permission to have more gatherings, having an open air or having right. like over 150 people in that slow build. Oh, I'm good. hoping in the optimism in me is that, um, that eventually we'll have stronger relationships when we're building from ground zero again and having the foundations with these, these community members. And then eventually when we are all introduced back into a club setting, when there's, you know, 500, 600 people, hopefully the, the familiar faces that you'll see are going to make have a more positive exchange and build more of like a um, a sense of community than before. So that's 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 a great way to look at it. Yeah. Because, you know, it's always been, I feel that especially in dance music, the dance music scene has been, man, I don't even want to get into all the politics behind it. Um, Not just race, but just financial and also, the laziness of a lot of the um, promoters and people that are doing the festivals, like they just look at, Oh, analytics, like, Oh, you have this many followers or, you know, you're getting this many views. Yeah. We'll book you, you know, like there's no creativity or chance taking in these festivals anymore. I mean, there are still, some that are like um, Le Guess Who Festival, I think, is one of the best in the world. Um, there's a few others that are pushing the boundaries of sound. But I'm just talking your regular dance. It's always the same 
same right. names. The same all agencies the time. book the same people same, and they always, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so incestuous. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And then the gatekeepers are just you know it's and it's not diverse at all. Exactly. exactly. You know what I mean? Well, racially. Mm-hmm. Um more female DJs and producers, of course, are but all these things the, could be improved, forefront. of course. Oh, absolutely. One hundred percent. I'm not saying it's perfect at all, but it is beautiful to see uh, more women at the forefront of what's going on. I am hoping that when we do rebuild to whatever our new normal is going to be, because obviously festivals are not going to be planned for quite a while now, that people are really going to sit with these discussions and conversations about how to make a better festival set up how to because especially because festivals were originally founded on finding new talent that no one had ever heard yeah. before and pushing sound and that's what's really worrying about the whole social media uh, model of like looking only at analytics and clicks and views and likes because obviously that's just like this this continuous feedback loop and you're not looking at any other kinds of scenes that you could potentially find some very exciting experimental artists <laughs> But yes. going back to, uh, um, I really wanted to talk about your new single, your new EP, um, Back to Black, yes. on the Berlin-based label Black Catalog, which released on June 5th. Yes. So the cover, I noticed, is very Afrofuturist, which goes along with your general body of work and the things that you've been um, always very interested in from the beginning of your career, or even before Afrofuturism uh, as a term was invented. And... How would you interpret, how did you interpret Afrofuturism in new ways for this release? And what message are you hoping that listeners will take away from it? So you have to understand that, you know, most, most of us speaking as Afrofuturists, right? Don't think about Afro, like the word, we just are, okay? We just are doing it, right? And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't intentionally think, oh, this is an Afrofuturist release. Everything that I do, I could do a country record and it's going to be an Afrofuturist release just because of who I am and the, the lens I look through, right? How I look at life and sound, that is what makes it quote unquote Afrofuturist. It's how I'm interpreting it just from my experiences, right? Being a professor, working with communities, doing, you know, everything culminating up to this point, right? And so I didn't purposely think, oh, this is an Afrofuturist release, right? So just to, just to let you know that. Um, Black Catalog, you know, started in, I think he started in Detroit. I mean... It's Monty Luke, who lives in Berlin now, one of my best friends. Uh, but he used to work for Carl, Carl Craig, a Planet E for many, many years uh, in Detroit. But he's actually from uh, West Coast, from Cali. But he had moved to Detroit, worked for Carl, uh, and then he worked for um, the Museum of Contemporary Art there, which was fantastic. He was a curator. And then he moved to Berlin two years ago. And I, you know, as soon as he moved over, I came over to visit because I had played Bergheim Panorama Bar. And uh, so I hung out with him and it was beautiful. And I had released something with him before 
uh, oh, the original Floston Paradigm one single I put on a compilation. And so he's like, I'm re- resurrecting the label because he had took taken a break. He's like, if you have anything, I'm like, dude, I'm working on this. Like, I've been playing a lot with polyrhythms, um, just crazy time signatures within uh, a four four construct. So you know, the beats are four four, like the the kick drum, you know, typical house techno. But around it, all the other things. There's all kinds of time signatures going on, six, eight, seven, eight, going in and out. And that's what I've been exploring since I've been at university because I've been doing more research in how to push sound, but in another way, because since I'm here, I'm immersed with these incredible professors that are my colleagues and they've been pushing me in different ways that I never thought about before intentionally like I'll do things maybe in different time signatures but not really think about it but now I'm thinking about it so maybe this answers your question a little bit more like I'm thinking more about just the polyrhythms but while I'm playing with polyrhythms I was thinking about time travel and playing with time because playing with these polyrhythms you're playing with time so i'm thinking of back to black especially touche as playing as time travel so these songs represent time travel and back to black the the title i'm it's like going back to black catalog you know it wasn't anything like political but then if you think about it because of my maybe subconsciously always talking to deforest about things and reclaiming the blackness of techno and blacktronica maybe subconsciously you know back to black also means reclaiming the sound from its origin so time traveling back re- reclaiming that and let's push it forward again carrying the torch um yeah so that's it yeah you know, that's it wasn't really, really yeah I think I was that, just having fun. Um, it actually reminds me this this idea of time travel. It does remind me a lot of um, a lot of the the ideas that More Mother, who's also from Philadelphia, folds into oh, yeah. you know Sonic Liberation and how there's ways that you can time travel through using uh, samples of archival material and then creating Absolutely. a ripple through the linear storytelling of Always. of yeah of Black Lives. Um, do you she's my sister yeah you know she we had her in class i worked on her last album so i did two songs on that the one with saul williams um uh black flight Mm -hmm. and i did another song on the album i also worked on saul's album but yeah i mean more mother there's no she is for me she's the epitome of what an artist should be Wow, just mind-blowing. We had her in class. So I had her and Shabazz Palaces, you know, my brother and my sister in one class, and they're both fans of each other. So it's just to see the back and forth between them, the energy, and then with our students, uh, it was beautiful to see that. But, yeah, more mother always. I mean, we, everyone who samples really thinks about sampling as time travel. But she's just more intentional about speaking about it. And um, 
it's beautiful to see like her take these ideas and and of course Rashida Phillips who that's her life partner and also music partner uh those two together i mean they are just the most powerful dynamic duo uh but also taking these ideas of black quantum futurism and bringing it into the community so you know i and i brought that out in class we we showed the there's a little documentary on them and how they have a safe a safe space for anyone creative who wants to just come in and they might want to write poetry or they might want to draw something but they have that space to express themselves and it takes me back to and i took the class back to sunra space is the place where he went into the community went to the community center and you know he was talking about his philosophies and ideas and how he wanted to you know free talk about black liberation but on another planet like we got to get out of here you know that whole idea of going into the community instead of oh the community's got to come to us no we got to go into the community and so that's always been enlightening and of of course I I'm from Philly and so I've seen this in real time with black quantum futurism and how they've really rebuilt Philly's kind of um underground music scene it's it's beautiful to see and of course DJ Haram you know she's doing her thing and of course Orion Sun who is her partner they're just it's just really beautiful to see Philly on the more experimental side of things but it also being very entrenched in black and brown communities it's beautiful right right i think i i had a conversation with more mother actually for um another article that i did last year uh oh, great. yeah on the album and and she was talking about all the work that she puts in 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 building up the cultural spaces in philly along with all the storytelling so it's interesting that it kind of comes full circle i'm talking to you now someone who did work on the album as well and we're talking about all these different themes um i have one final question obviously because of the um black lives matter movement and this revolutionary period how have you been able to react to what's going on through education or through um yeah through education and through like addressing these things with your students because it is during finals period everything is just it's very overwhelming but yeah could you touch upon that yeah this has been so the whole idea of the course black tronica of course is to shed light on these black pioneers right so just that just this act of creating the class and the students being in the class is revolutionary especially for UCSD and we've been discussing the whole socio political you know energy around all of these movements right so you know i talked about the black panthers when we had a whole uh, class on funk and jazz fusion and so the black panther movement and the whole black liberation movement of the 70s was so instrumental in not only in funk but also in jazz fusion so we had julian priester 
as a guest from Wang Dishi, which is Herbie Hancock's band, one of the first jazz fusion bands to use the ARP 2600 uh, synthesizer, and also Dexter Wanzel, which is a little bit later past fusion. He's more uh, taking disco into a whole different way. But the root of that was we were talking about Black Panthers and how talking about Angela Davis and her connection uh, with the movement, uh, Black Liberation Movement, of course, and she was on trial. But Angela Davis, she went to UCSD for a year. And so there was this kind of full circle moment there, right? But at that moment, when we were talking about the Black Panthers, I grew up in Philly. My mom was one. And we were talking about uh, Frank Rizzo. And so Frank Rizzo was the most corrupt, worst mayor of all time in Philly. Extremely racist to the point where he infiltrated the Black Panther headquarters and made them strip down naked on the street while being arrested. And so this is this is who we're dealing with. Now, in Philly, there's this huge, massive statue out front of the police of City Hall, right? The courthouse. Huge picture or huge um, bronze statue of Frank Rizzo. Now, fast forward a few weeks after that course or after that class, the protests are happening, you know, more lynchings of black people in America and the protest in Philly, they deface the Rizzo statue. So we're seeing this in real time happen. And my students are like, oh, that's the Rizzo you're talking about in the funk class. I'm like, yeah. And then the week later, which was last week, they took the statue down. The city removed the statue. For 20 plus years, they've been trying every black community, everybody's been like, we got to get rid of this statue. It represents one of the sorest, worst racist parts of Philadelphia. And it's, you can't avoid it if you're downtown. It has to be removed. And they removed it. I mean, they, I almost had a party in my apartment. Like I was just like, I can't believe this. It was such a huge move for Philly. And so for my students to see that is so powerful for them to witness this. And then a lot of my students, they're always at the protest. And so a lot of them are on Instagram. We're talking and they're sending me video and I'm like, be careful, whatever. But I feel that the class really, and most of the people in my class, most of the students are musicians. And so now they're doing music that, is coming from them going to the protests. So they're in it. They're living it. And the whole, I don't even need to say Black Lives Matter because the course is showing Black Lives Matter. The course itself is showing the lineage of black and brown communities creating this music out of sociopolitical situations. We're in it. They're in it. They're doing it. That's in real time. It's so powerful. I don't have to say anything. 
I didn't have to say anything. We're doing it. Right. And it's also really beautiful. The fact that they're able to take this, have all, see all these things in front of them and then feel as though they have to really make a difference. And if they're making electronic music too, give credit where it's due. So they're going out into the community as they grow, learning from this class and then also being like, okay, I know exactly who I need to, um, yeah, respect and give my deference to as I grow into the industry. And that's, and yes. the conversation that they have with people too, it's hopefully inevitably going to spread. Um, totally. It already yeah. starting. And, and the other thing is to dismantle, you know, there's different ways you can be on the front line, but also behind the scenes, being in education, having a class like this, being present, you know, our black faculty at UCSD definitely needs to be increased. And so I'm adding to that conversation, but also to dismantle racism from the inside. What better way than education? Exactly. exactly. And then, like you said, these young students will go out and spread the word and the intention behind the sounds that they're creating will shift and maybe resonate with people all around the world. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's so powerful. That, that really warms my heart. And I also think about um, how these students, the way, yeah, the, the way they interface with sound will be so completely different because of this class. And they'll think about it for the future for so long as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you're, you're also teaching this, uh, this class next quarter as well. How yes, so yeah. fall and winter. So now it's like, it was just going to be spring, but now it's like every quarter. So the beautiful thing about it is, you know, now I have this archive that I'm building. So I have all these interviews, everyone from Questlove to Georgia Ann Muldrow, you know, Carl and all of I have these interviews. So now, okay, well, next quarter, I'm going to get some new, some new uh, interviews. And we'll, we'll still reference the old ones, of course. But every quarter, it's just going to be new interviews. So, you know, and I'm going to, I want to do a th whole thing on Grace Jones and how instrumental, because, you know, I have all the pioneer, like the, the, the foundation, I have it. So now I can go and start to explore, you know, other people too. Like I would love to get Klein, you know, I would love to, I would love to get Grace. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she, of course. <laughs> holy shit. Cause we, you know, we, we covered dub, uh, reggae and we talked about dub and Lee scratch Perry and Matt professor and how that was a foundation for drum and bass. People don't, a lot of people don't realize that. And the whole dub, dub plate culture and making dub plates and also hip hop, of course, Cool Herc grew up in Jamaica and then moved to Queens, I think at about 13, but brought that sound system culture to the Bronx. He brought that sound system culture there. So if you see that video of him riding around in the, Cadillac with the two big speakers, you know, he's setting up the sound system. That's a huge, huge thing, you know, and sound system culture in the UK, 
you know, once in, once Jamaica was uh, independent, you know, a lot of Jamaicans moved to England just for work, for more opportunities, but bringing that culture, sound system culture with them. So now you have carnival and all, but all of that is fuses into drum and bass and that scene and making dub plates. And, you know, if you ever went, well, you might not have gone, but like Blue Note, when Goldie was doing the Blue Note in London, you know, just that whole sound system culture within the Blue Note, like the MC with drum and bass, like it's a huge connection. And it was beautiful to see that, you know, connection. So Grace Jones being Jamaican, coming out of sound system culture, I want to investigate that. You know what I mean? Like these are things that now I'm thinking as a professor, I'm not thinking as a musician anymore. I mean, I still am, but for the class, I'm thinking, wow, research, like all the stuff that we've done, this is all important to research and archival material. Like now UCSD has an archive that no one in the world has. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that you're such a, an instrumental figure, I mean, obviously humanities is teaching people how to rethink about the world and having such a massive part in that and then building up this archive of experts in the field and getting into the nitty gritty details of how all these genres connect. It's essential work. And I'm your students are very lucky and very privileged to have you. Um, but this concludes... I'm lucky too to have them. <laughs> exactly. Um, but this concludes our interview. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. This was such an illuminating conversation and a very important conversation to have. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, we'll stay in touch, of course. Good luck with your finals. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Ciao. All right. Later. Thanks, Whitney, for taking over this conversation with King Brit. I hope you were able to take some informative and inspiring thoughts from this conversation as I did. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode too. And as always, I'm looking forward to your feedback. Text us via Instagram like King Brit did or leave a review on Apple. Until then, stay safe and up to the next episode. Das war der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast. Abonniert den Podcast bei Apple, Soundcloud, Spotify oder Deezer. Wir sehen uns im Club. Bis dann. <lacht>